My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. You're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Which is an eco-socialist podcast based in Toronto. This episode of our podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. In fact, all of our episodes are brought to you by our Patreon supporters. If it wasn't for our patrons, we wouldn't be able to do this. So we really appreciate their support. That's right. And if you too would like to contribute to the making of this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and becoming a monthly supporter. All right. Should we cut to our interview with Freddie? Let's do it. Freddie DeBoer is an educator based in Brooklyn. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Jacobin. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Cult of Smart, How a Broken Education System Perpetuates Social Injustice. Welcome to Oats for Breakfast, Freddie. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, you guys. All right, so before getting to your book, we have to ask you the obligatory uh, COVID-related question. Okay. And... Actually, in your case, it's particularly important because you're in New York, uh, which was, for a time at least, the epicenter of the global pandemic. So how has life been over the last few months? Well, I got the the virus back in April. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, I had a a fever for uh, 12 days. Um, I, I had a funny taste in my mouth. I had a dry hacking cough the whole nine. But... Uh, I came out of it fine. Uh, and yeah, it's just been a big bummer. You know, it's in a, in a certain sense, all the bad things about New York are still here. Like for example, the rental rates, but the good stuff, like all the museums and the restaurants and bars, uh, are all closed. So, uh, I'm still paying for the New York experience, but not getting it. So that sucks. Yeah. Sorry to hear. Glad you're doing yeah. better. That's okay. I'll live. Um, So tell us a bit about the book, The Cult of Smart. Why do you think our education system is broken and how does this perpetuate social injustice? Sure. So uh, the basic gist of my book uh, is that we have seen in in recent years, especially in recent decades, this intensifying phenomenon where someone's worth is determined by their academic ability, by how long they go to school, how well they do in school, that... um, if you look at something like the college acceptance game where uh, teenagers uh, have to submit themselves to these evaluations, that has become um, only more frenzied, panicked, dysfunctional, unfair for the students themselves as the stakes appear to be higher and higher. For one thing, because we have population growth, but we're not growing the sizes of uh, student populations at schools. And I observed this uh, as a teacher, because uh, for 20 years, I've been teaching something or another. uh, And I found that there was just no vocabulary to to sort of talk about, um, not the problem of how to make everyone smart, which is what the educational research uh, edifice wants to focus on, but the problem of what do we do if we acknowledge that some people are always going to be more academically adroit than other people? What, what What if we accept that there's always going to be a distribution of ability that half of everyone is always going to be below the mean. Um, how do we build a more just society? And I think that the the way in which schooling contributes to uh, uh, injustice in society is simply that 
Academic ability is unevenly distributed. Not everybody has the same level of academic ability. And we don't seem to be able to solve that with any of our interventions. So for all of the research in education and all the pedagogical innovations, uh, we, can't, we can't make everybody equal in, the, in school. And that if you are someone who does not succeed at the school game, if you're someone who lacks a college degree, especially, the uh, economic situation for you has been fairly bleak for the last several decades, certainly from, say, the 1980s on an intensifying phenomenon. And that's immoral. It's immoral for a situation to be where your ability to secure the good life, your ability to have monetary security, financial security, to enjoy material comfort, it's immoral if that system is based on factors that are outside of the control of individuals. The whole basic idea of meritocracy is that if you're smart and talented and you work hard, you can secure your place among the, the, the affluent. But if, in fact, that's not true, if, in fact, people have very different abilities to do well in school, then the whole system, to me, collapses. At least the moral justification for the system collapses. So maybe I can build up on that by asking that I don't know in the States, but in Canada we have, or in Ontario, we have a streaming system in, in high schools where um, students from grade, going from grade eight to grade nine and through high school are streamed into academic and applied and then some other elite streams. Recently, there's been controversy around that way of sorting as having a racial bias and certainly having a bias for students from low-income communities. So how would you respond to uh, something like streaming, which um, on the surface seems to acknowledge what you're saying, that um, you know, students have different capacities? Well, and just to, sorry, just to clarify, I think in Ontario, as of the last couple of weeks, the provincial government has announced that it's getting rid of streaming, right? For grade nines, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. anyway, but that uh, doesn't impact the question itself. So, uh, so we call that tracking here in the U.S. Um, tracking is extremely controversial. It always has been. There is a limited form of tracking, but nothing like in Canada or in Germany. I mean, in Germany, at about 12 years old, you are sorted into tracks that are almost completely different. Um, that's a much more uh, racially homogenous society, so those dynamics probably don't play out as starkly. But tracking is seen by its opponents as being a matter of declaring somebody's potential to be uh, insufficient and so that we, we are giving up on that person. I think the racial question is very important. I think, though, that it's an epiphenomenon, right? Like the racial dynamics at play in tracking or streaming are just a, a part of a broader set of racial uh, realities in education, which is that we have a racial achievement gap uh, that pretty much everybody knows about that black students and to an extent Hispanic students lag behind the mean and that uh, white students and especially Asian American students succeed uh, at, uh, above the mean. Um, that is a big naughty problem. It's kind of a problem I wanted to sidestep in the book for the simple reason that there's already an enormous amount of literature has been written about it. But the streaming or the tracking is just revealing that baked into the system inequality. Now, I think that the racial achievement gap is the product of profoundly different environments. I think that we have all of the ways that white supremacy um, disadvantages uh, black people in, our, in American society 
we have things obviously with poverty rate, but also things, there's all, all manner of indicators that you can look at that, uh, that could combine to create this, envir- this environmental problem. So uh, another one is lead. So it, it turns out that lead is, um, exposure to lead actually has, is associated with a um, with oftentimes severe uh, cognitive difficulties, um, especially if it happens early in life. Well, it happens that black people are exposed to lead more often than white people in America, even if you correct for income. So even when we compare them at the same income band, black, stu- black students have a higher chance of having been exposed to lead early in childhood. Another thing is premature babies. So um, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, people who were premature suffer significantly in the academic um, uh, race. Not everyone, obviously, but in terms of averages, in terms of the trends, it, there's a, a stark difference between people who were born prematurely and those who weren't. And black uh, babies are more likely to be born per- prematurely in the United States, as far as I understand it. So you take all kinds of things like that and all kinds of things that we don't know, and we uh, you combine them up and you get this situation where black students are uh, underperforming compared to white. Now, the streaming or the tracking... Uh, the, the, the fundamental problem of the racial imbalance can't be solved by getting rid of streaming or tracking, right? Because if the students are still performing, underperforming compared to their peers, that's going to happen in a system without tracking anyway, right? So, and that's a good example. So, for example, Seattle is doing something similar with its gifted program. So, its gifted student program is not representative of the city's racial dynamics as a whole. Um, and black and Asian students are overrepresented and, and uh, excuse me, white and, and Asian students are overrepresented and black and Hispanic students are underrepresented. And they're getting rid of the gifted program. Well, I mean, I'm on board with that as far as it goes, but the point is that that's not going to solve the underlying issue, right? Um, it's going to take dramatic social change to end those inequalities. And so putting the blame on something like tracking or streaming, to me, me is putting the cart before the horse. So you would say that your argument would hold in a social context in which the racial and income gaps that you know have persisted in the education system, even if they were to be addressed and perfectly addressed, that your argument would still hold, that they would, of course, still be students uh, proportionately, you know, in each racial or income category would still end up uh, on the less smart side of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. In my opinion is that if we eliminate white supremacy, if we eliminate these structures, then we will eliminate the, the black-white performance gap. I think the achievement gap is solvable, but not on the educational side. I think the achievement gap is uh, solvable on the political side and the economic side and the social side. In other words, for a long time now, we've been attempting to address racial inequality through education. In fact, what's much more likely to, to work is to address uh, racial inequality. And through that, the racial inequality uh, in education will, uh, will disappear. The question becomes, once we have a racially representative uh, system, once we no longer have these racial gaps, you know, what are we suddenly left with people without people who are struggling badly? And the answer is, of course not. We would still see uh, individual students who suffer in school. There's always going to be a distribution of ability within the system. And the the problem with conceiving everything 
in terms of the racial achievement gap is because it says nothing about the individual's capacity to thrive. So I can see a world where black people are equally represented uh, in the in academic excellence. Um, I think that that's very doable. But when we still do that, we'll still have untalented students of any race, right? I mean, take any demographic slice you want. So let's look at black inner city youth who have a single parent who come from poverty, who uh, have, who go to this, the same public school, but and have the same teacher. You take two of those students who match in every way we can think of to match them. And yet one will excel and one will struggle, right? That's true of any demographic slice you want. The the gaps between uh, between groups, like the, the gap between black and white, is always much smaller than the gaps between individuals, between uh, uh, within groups, that is to say. Um, and that's the, the concern of the, book, of the book. The book is to say, what are we doing for and what are we going to do for people who are not d- disadvantaged because of their race or their economic class, but are disadvantaged because they don't have the same level of innate academic talent that other people have. Right. So uh, we got on this track by, uh, well, you, the first thing you said is this is an issue you wanted to sidestep in the book, but here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But let's uh, let's resolve My it. My apologies. No, 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 no. I, I think obviously it's not something so easy to, to sidestep. And I want to actually, it's good to get it out of the way here. But I, I think this is part of the pushback you're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. Um because what you're saying is that individual genetic difference does exist and it does contribute to, you know, the academic achievement that individuals have. And people might think that what you're saying is that all of the academic outcomes are explained by genetic difference. But that's not what you're saying. No, not at all. And you're certainly not saying that black and Latino kids you know, they do relatively poorly in school or that, you know, girls, for instance, may do poorly in math compared to boys, that that is because of innate genetic ability. No. So, I mean, just let's clarify. I mean, we can't, you've kind of done this already, but just to hit, hit it home, just clarify the difference, uh, sort of in explaining differences between groups as opposed to individuals. So let's talk by, by analogy. Okay. Let's say we gather up a bunch of students and we tell these kids that we're going to have a jumping contest. Okay. So we're going to measure how tall each student can jump and we're going to take some averages. We'll take, for example, averages by race or by, uh, by income band, whatever. But what we decide to do for whatever reason is we give some of the kids weight belts that make it harder to jump. And we give some kids uh, uh, springy shoes that help them jump higher. And some kids we give no, neither an advantage or a disadvantage. So we then look at our outcomes uh, within all these groups. And to nobody's surprise, the group that we disadvantage with weight belts have a lower average performance than those who don't have the weight belts and those with the springy shoes. Those with the springy shoes have an advantage in terms of the average compared to those who don't have the springy shoes. But... Within that distribution, there's always going to be significant variation so that there's going to be some kids with the weight belts who are so talented at jumping that 
even though they have this disadvantage, they still perform uh, exceptionally compared to their peers. And there's going to be, on the flip side, some kids who, even with springy shoes, have such little jumping talent that they're going to be in the middle of the pack or lower simply by, uh, even with that, that advantage that they have. And so the analogy is obvious, right? Uh, the weight belts are the weight of white supremacy and structural imbalances that hold back Black and Hispanic people. And the springy shoes are the advantages of being white or Hispanic or, or Asian American, depending upon lots of things, because the Asian American category is not a me meaningful category anyway. Um, so the point is, even though we have uh, averages that are expected that we would expect within individual groups uh, or between groups, rather, excuse me, between groups, um, within those groups, there's profound variation. And the question is why, right? The, the, those kids I mentioned earlier, those two black kids who have share all these demographic features, why is it that one of them will excel and another one of them will, will struggle? Um, there are uh, black kids in this country who, uh, despite the uh, achieve, racial achievement gap, get into every Ivy League school uh, there is and are in the top, you know, five percent or three percent or whatever on the SAT, et cetera, et cetera. So, so pe people can individually exceed or fall below their station. And where does that variation come from? As you suggested, I don't think that it is 100% genetic, and nobody in the field of behavioral genetics thinks it's 100% genetic. What they do think is that at least 0.5%, uh, uh, excuse me, 5% of the variation, or the, of the variance, 50% of the variance, sorry, uh, at least 50% of the variance, the heritability coefficient of 0.5, is attributable to biological parentage, to, to genetics. That is a very durable finding that has been replicated across hundreds of studies over and over again. These were called kinship studies where you look at, you use identical twins and you use adopted siblings. So you have different uh, levels of uh, genetic relatedness and they consistently find that over half of the variants uh, within the group can be explained by, uh, by genetics. What's the rest of it? Well, the rest of it is controversial. Um, many of the studies seem to find that parents have very little control over their, their kids' outcomes. The parent, parental uh, impact on outcomes is uh, consistently found to be small, which offends a lot of parents. Um, but there's also what's called the unshared environment, which is um, it's a catch-all for just all the stuff of life that is not anything we're ever gonna fit into a model, right? Like all this, the unshared environment is all the weird random chance. Like maybe one day you happened to go to the library and got entranced by a certain book and it took you on a path of learning that you wouldn't have gone otherwise, right? So that's all the stuff and that's almost half as well. So it's important to remember that these are trends, right? And there are always going to be exceptions to these trends, but the, Research is large and powerful and convincing, in my opinion. And I also think it's it's fair to say that uh, the research uh, sort of confirms what I think a lot of people casually know, which is when you went to school, you knew there were smarter kids and less smart kids. And you also knew that those smarter kids tended to be the smarter kids year in and year out. In other words, when we look at uh, academic outcomes over the course of life, the relative position within the hierarchy, right? So you look at everyone relative to their peers, an individual student 
tends to stay in their ability band from kindergarten to college, okay? Of course, there's individual exceptions. We can imagine all kinds of scenarios where things could change. So a kid who, who always struggled, maybe, uh, maybe he finds a mentor who pulls him up and, and elevates him. A kid who was doing great, um, his parents' divorce and the trauma causes him to fall behind. Those individual exceptions happen. But we know that metrics as early as kindergarten or even pre-K can tell us meaningful things about how well a student will perform in third grade. We know that third grade is a strong indicator of whether someone will graduate from high school. So at third grade, we can make fairly reliable predictions about who's going to be going into college and what kind of college you're going to be going into based on third grade data. And then, of course, grad school, college is best uh, is tends to preserve the same hierarchies that were found in high school and grad school the same that were found in college. So I think that it's a combination of common sense, which is that, you know, we, we kind of had a sense of who was the, the smart kids. The, in other words, the academically inclined kids when we were in school. And there's a, a now very large uh, research base, which is now also being supplemented by uh, studies that directly look at the association between the genome and the, um, and the academic outcomes. And that is a field that is going to explode soon. So why should uh, pick back up on something I think that you've been saying, but we didn't directly touch on is, um, is this notion of how we understand the public education system or education system um, generally. And I think in modern capitalist societies, and not just in the West, there, there is a conviction and a fixation that the education system is the route, the medium of equalizing society. Yes. And if if only we could just get all the poor kids through school, if we have the right programs, um, remedial help, extra, you know, curriculars, enrichment, that that will fix society. And mm-hmm. what you're saying is actually, you know, the education system is not going to be where racial inequality or class inequality is going to um, get addressed. Yeah, I mean, look, um, it, it's a very bizarre conflicting set of basic assumptions about what education is for, right? As you just said, education is constantly sold as the, uh, the key to equality. And in fact, in my book, I quote Presidents uh, Obama, uh, George W. Bush, Clinton, H.W. Bush, I think I quote Reagan, all of them saying that some version of that, that it's that school is the equalizer. But in another more obvious sense, it's absurd to call a school an equalizer because what teachers do for 13 years of K through 12 schooling is determine how their students are unequal, right? The purpose of grades is designed to identify inequality between different students in terms of how well they succeeded. The reason why we keep a class rank, why people can report, I'm fifth in my class or whatever, that's in order to establish inequality. The purpose of standardized tests, the more sophisticated a test becomes, the, uh, uh, the more able it is to find and root out inequality. And so we're asking for the system to be this leveler, but in its basic operation and functions, it is in fact an engine for inequality. It is a system to identify inequality. And so on the notion of equality, because uh, one of the ideas that your book promotes is that our education system should be geared towards equality of outcomes. 
threat. What does that mean to you and how could it possibly be achieved? So I want to be want to be careful. Yeah, I'm interested in equality of outcomes, but education can't achieve it precisely because of the inequality that I'm identifying in, in people's underlying ability. Rather, I think that we should have a society that stops telling itself pleasant lies about equality of uh, opportunity and focus more on equality of, of outcomes and try to push things together a little bit. We'll never have perfectly equal outcomes. I mean, everybody sees Marxism as this egalitarian philosophy, but both Marx and Engels independently said that total equality is not a, not a, a good political goal that it can't ever achieve, be achieved. But we can't squash, squash the distribution, right? So uh, I would like to make life easier for people who don't have what it takes to go to college, who don't want to go to college in many instances. Uh, there are millions of people in this country who did several years of college, took on student loan debt, failed out or dropped out, and uh, now have uh, the hindrance of debt without the benefit of a degree. I want to raise the floor for them and for everyone, right? I want us to institute programs like universal basic income where the, uh, the, the floor, like how bad your life can be materially, is raised because we're now giving people money in order to be able to better flourish. Now, in order to do that, in order to pay for that, you have to uh, increase your taxation on the top, you know, quintiles, not just the top quintile, but the top two quintiles at least. And in that way, you drag the ceiling down a little bit. The good news is that we have a lot of slack in terms of dragging down the ceiling. I think Jeff Bezos is worth something like $175 billion. And there's a lot of people who are nipping at his heels. Um, there is, we pay a not a very high at all a tax burden uh, currently. And so there's the opportunity to do that. But within schools, I want us to sort of give up on achieving equality of outcomes, but only because we recognize that we shouldn't uh, be looking at people through these, these limited metrics in the first place. So one thing that I get a lot in this book is that I'm cursing people to be left behind, right? And that I'm saying that people aren't good enough, uh, that um, the people who don't have the genetic predisposition to do well in school are people who, you know, have failed in some way. But the whole point of the book, I mean, the, the, the title the, about the, what I want to smash, to call it smart, is to stop associating smart with uh, someone's greater value or worth, to stop making that the chief uh, indicator of whether or not you're a, a successful human being, a good human being, a human being who deserves material security. I want to get rid of all that. Uh, and so you know, if I'm saying people are unequal, it's not to harm people at the bottom. It's in fact to say, let's stop with this uh, inherently unfair race to the top that um, is designed to exclude a lot of people. Well, yeah, it's just, I, I would not know how to value myself if we did smash that cult, you know, because I, all through my life, all I've learned is that uh, that's how you value yourself. And when you're sort of in a small group of people, you you do relatively well, you feel good, and then you, you climb up and then you get to university and you realize actually, maybe you're not that smart, but you still, that's that's the basis with which you you measure your own value. Yeah, I uh, I should know. I mean, I have, I have a PhD, right? And I am um, thoroughly... Uh, as someone who totally understands and shares the, the love of learning and who found school, particularly grad school, to be a, a lot of fun. Um, high school wasn't fun, but, um, but, but college and grad school were a lot of fun. 
Um, and, but those people will always exist, right? I mean, the, one of the nice things about it is that like, when you, when you remove the immediate need to do well in school and to be a school type person, when you have created a structural economic situation where you're not risking the rest of your life if you drop out of school, for example, what you have is the people who just really want to do it to do it, you know? I had a, a student I was teaching at the University of Rhode Island, and I was trying to get through to him. He was very mediocre and was not coming to class, was not doing assigned work, whatever. I was talking to him, and he said straight up, uh, the problem was that he didn't want to be there. And I said, well, when, why are you here? College is voluntary. No one is forcing you, and you're paying a lot of money. And he said, my dad is a fisherman. And what am I going to do? Follow him into the fishing business, right? Because the, the Rhode Island fishing business is in perpetual decline, right? Um, and so that's an example of a kind of student who is not served by the, by the system. He's only in the system because it's the only way he can think of to secure the good life for himself and for a family. Uh, he knows that he is not a school person. And there's lots of brilliant people who are brilliant in other ways who don't like school. I know that I went to school with a lot of people who had... Uh, their own kind of intelligences that were not translatable into uh, pen and paper, you know, school stuff. That student is taking up space. He's using precious resources. He's giving himself student loan debt and for a degree which he doesn't particularly want. And so once we create a system where your immediate economic future is not so tied up in getting a degree, then we'll have more people who a higher percentage of the people will be people who just wanted to be there, want to do it, are interested or self-motivated. As far as being intrinsically feeling like school is how you've always valued yourself, that's very understandable. It's very human. I was going to call it American, but I think it, it transcends. Uh, and it's not um, something that I think is shameful in any sense, but I do think that it is the 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 influence of ideology is all over it, right? So one of the things I say in the book is the economic situation changed and the culture changed with it, right? In other words, the economics dro drove, you know, once the, the uneducated labor market collapsed and it collapsed multiple times, I mean, the, the, the uh, 2008, 2009 recession uh, was absolutely brutal for people with only a high school diploma. When you have education becoming more important in the economic system, then the culture says more and more education is the most important thing. And I'm sure that you would like to be remembered or thought of as someone, uh, not just for your intelligence, but for your creativity, for your compassion, for your desire to communicate, for your gentleness. I don't have any of those things. Oh. The education system took that out of me. Oh, man. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's why we got to smash it then. But no, sorry, go on. <laughs> No, yeah, I just, th those, I mean, so I, I've been telling this book all over, this story over and over. Um, sorry to repeat it again to anyone who's heard the previous podcasts, but um, uh, I was at a party at Purdue where I got my PhD and there was um, a lot of people talking, like a barbecue uh, cookout, and there was a Chinese family there. The, the father was a PhD student. I'm not sure if the mother was as well. Anyway, they had two kids, two boys, and they were running around. And the mom was bragging on her older child and saying about how he was, um, you know, tops in his class, uh, doing um, math two grade levels ahead of, of where he was, he was supposed to be, how he was in a robotics club, whatever, typical helicopter parent stuff. And then a little bit later, uh, 
her younger son came running by making funny noises with his mouth. And she said, he is maybe not so smart. <laughs> and I immediately kind of clenched up and I could tell other people at the party did too. They're like, well, you don't say that about your kid. How could you ever say to your kid you know, that your kid isn't smart? You know? And this was someone who obviously values academic ability and intelligence because she just was valuing it when it came to her other kid. And so I was a little bit disturbed by it, but later on, I kind of found it very refreshing because I thought about it and I thought to myself, if she had said he doesn't have an ear for music, I wouldn't have noticed or cared. If she had said he'll never be a great artist, I wouldn't have cared. If she had said he'll never be a great athlete, I wouldn't have cared. So all these indicators of things that you can do or can't do or these, these personal characteristics, those are all fine. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice about them. But it's only smart, which is seen as being this summation of a human being, that it's only smart that makes me blanch and say, oh, how can you say that about your kid? When in fact, maybe she's got to just has a very healthy relationship towards uh, her child as a holistic being who has all kinds of different things that define them, not just their academic uh, outcomes. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, when you say that you can imagine a society where uh, smart is not how people are valued. Like at first, it just seems like mind-boggling to me. That well, how could that be? Like everything you know that we value about society uh, and people that we hold up, it's all about you know these people were geniuses. They they invented things. They pushed the entire society forward, and they are the ones that history remembers. And everyone else is sort of in the background. But you know the way that you phrased it that insofar as we understand smartness as just another innate quality as any other that is you know heavily determined by genetics so the that that doesn't have to be treated as exceptionally different and something that everyone can achieve when we wouldn't expect any of us to be like Usain Bolts or you know basketball players in terms of our physical capacities mm. but we do accept uh, expect that for each child to show yeah. and and that kind of discrimination i guess is, is something that's very much tolerated in contrast to a lot of other things that society has progressed on yeah i mean i don't think it's at all unhealthy for an individual to say i'm good at school and that is a big thing about me i don't even think it's, un it's unhealthy for an individual to say being good at school is like the main thing for me. That's the that's what how I sort of self-define. I think that's that's perfectly healthy in individuals. My problem is with a system that churns out a lot of people who are not in that in that category, and tells them that it's their own fault when they then can't secure a minimally comfortable economic existence, and also tells them culturally that hey, you're not worth much if, unless you went to an Ivy League school. That's what I'm, I want to change systems, not necessarily individuals. So on the system, then the sort of um, policy and political kind of vision that you have uh, sounds, you know, uh, it's more similar to sort of social democratic and Scandinavian kind of models than certain North American ones. So would you say that in, in the countries uh, in European countries that are more social democratic leaning that there you found there to be a different approach to education or so far like it's just a hegemonic approach as far as it's concerned right now so i i looked in and and looked for studies that i could find decent studies that i could find that reflected on 
the place of schooling in other countries in terms of the, the national psyche. And I didn't find much. I mean, I found some things. So for example, there's a lot of really speculation, but a lot of reflecting on, uh, on Indian and Chinese culture and in the, the culture of education within them. Like for example, in China, at the end of your high school career, you take the Gaokao, which not only tells you what school you can go to, but it also often functionally says what you can study when you get there. And it takes two days and it, um, they often will shut down the streets around the, the school so that they can, uh, students can take the test undisturbed. But I didn't find anything that sort of gave me a systematic look at, okay, what's the relationship between the social uh, welfare state of a given, of a given nation and how uh, they value school? I, I tried to sort of bend a few things in that direction in the book, but I just didn't feel like I had the empirical confirmation I needed. But you did uh, mention a little bit about the ideological nature of this, and you, you mentioned briefly that as the uneducated part of the labor market, as things became more difficult for the uneducated part of the labor market, the cult of smart became a louder part of the propaganda machine. So maybe could you talk a bit more about that? I mean, what was it like, say, in the early post-war period before we had what is the modern-day cult of smart? So... um we have a picture of the, the 1950s in in American uh, history as being a time when you got the job, whether at an office or a factory, you had a house with a two-car garage, you had a wife, you had 2.5 kids, and by participating in, in the economy as a worker and by participating in, in Christianity through church, and basically fulfilling the sort of very narrow sort of vision of Americanness that was it was meant to be intrinsically um, satisfying. Now I don't know. Maybe most of the people living at that time secretly were terribly unsatisfied with it. But in other in any way, in any event, you at least had these ideological uh, sort of ideas about what it means to be a successful human being that had more to do with traditional gender roles being a breadwinner or being a homemaker. And uh, those things help to sort of establish, you know, your identity as a, as a human person. Um, then the sixties come and the, that whole edifice is undermined. Those things that were assumed to be valuable were now so, so, thought to be um, square, right? That, that suddenly um, that lifestyle was seen as terribly restrictive. And of course, for obvious reasons, I mean, women being the most obvious of those reasons, right? Because it being assumed to be a homemaker is not a satisfying existence for many people. And so one of the points that I've made for a long time, not even connected to the book, is that we essentially undermined all of these traditional ways to understand your own value, but we never really replaced them with anything. And I think that as time went on, as offshoring and automation dramatically reduced the manufacturing center in the United States. So it's important to say the United States still manufactures a ton of stuff. We just don't employ nearly as many people as we do. So when people say we don't make things, it's not quite real, right. It's, we make things, but we're able to make things now with far fewer workers than we once did. Um, as that happens, you know, the, the Bruce Springsteen, you know, late 70s, early 80s of the declining American factory, et cetera. As that happens, the economic uh, imperative of going to college gets higher and higher. We also have, and again, these are, this is a good thing, but we also have the 
collapsing of uh, racial uh, and gender barriers to get going to college. So colleges become in, uh, uh, integrated and more and more black uh, students start to go to school. And so we have a rising uh, population. And so more and more college looks like to be just a way to establish who you want to be and who you are. And it has the benefit of economic advantage. You know, the, the high school, in high school, the college acceptance game is weird because nobody likes it, right? You know, this constant grinding desire to do better and better in school so that you can get into the good school. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible in many ways and it makes people crazy. But I think for a lot of people, they find that that period of their lives has the most intrinsic meaning of any because they have such an obvious and tangible goal, right? Like I think a lot of people get out of college and they say, because they go through the college acceptance process and their life has had this singular unitary focus for so long, college, 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 college. Then they go to college and they're drunk for four years. And then they come out of college and it's like everyone talks about these early to mid twenties malaise where nobody knows what they want to do. Nothing seems to have meaning. None of the paths forward for them seem to be attractive. And I think a lot of that has to do with you had that, you had the structure of school and the structure of the academic imperative um, is a really, is a place where you know where you stand. Even if you don't like your position in your, in your class rank, you at least know where you stand and you know how you can do better. And I think taking that away from people, I think that really pulls the rug out of a lot of people. Is that malaise only supposed to last into the mid twenties? Oh man, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> turning 40 next year and uh, uh, I'll let you know when I lose it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There seems to be no end in sight. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, this might be getting a little bit more concrete than um, you'd rather get. And I understand that you're making a much bigger conceptual political point. But some of the one of the excerpts that we had read of yours had uh, given a concrete example about what sort of changes you'd like to see in the education system at the below college level. And one of them was to not require um, high school algebra mm -hmm. uh, for all students to take, which I guess is a thing that happens in, in the US. What sort of other like, concrete changes are you suggesting? Are you suggesting to get rid of grades or uh, you know, get rid of uh, certain kind of achievement markers? Yeah, so um, I guess the, 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 the biggest answer to this is the algebra is one specific example because of the data, we have so much data and it's so stark demonstrating how badly that requirement hurts people. It's really hard to overstate how many students get caught in real academic trouble because they struggle to fulfill their algebra requirement, not only in high school, but also in college. But so in a more broad sense, relaxing of standards is where we should be going with this, where we want to give students more of a set of outs, more different ways that they can proceed to that degree so that uh, they don't have to spend a ton of time in subjects that they don't like, right? Um, and, or subjects that they don't have a natural facility for. Unfortunately, we're doing the exact opposite, right? We adopted the common core, which is funny because, you know, people always talk about wanting innovation in school and dynamism, et cetera. But uh, to the common core, which they also support, is the opposite of innovation and dynamism, you know? Um, Can you explain to us a little bit about what the common core is? Yeah. So common core uh, is a set of standards that are meant to uh, standardize 
American education so that a, a high school graduate in Tennessee knows more or less the same thing as a high school graduate in Oregon. Uh, they were passed in uh, within the past uh, 10 years, I believe. Um, most of them in most of the states, I believe 41, it's either 41 or 44, but I think it's 41 American states have the Common Core. It was controversial, um, particularly among conservatives, because uh, it, the, Bill, the Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation uh, essentially passed this across the country through by fiat. In other words, they poured a ton of money into getting this passed in various state legislatures when nobody was really looking. I mean, in many of these instances, the bills came and were, and were passed so quickly that there was really no time for public review. And so conservatives got mad about that because they don't want, you know, coastal liberals like the Bill and Melinda Gates telling them how their, their kids should be uh, taught. So I think three states that had originally ratified them rescinded them. But it's a, it's a list of, you know, you, you should acquire X uh, in this learn in this language art and you should uh, do this many credits in uh, in, in math and science. And, you know, it's just, it's just like any, like at any college, it's just like a list of, of general education requirements. And I just think that, um, again, you know, some things are just not some people's jam, you know, uh, I understand wanting to make sure that everybody has, uh, uh, sufficient underlying skills to be able to navigate the workplace. But, um, look like, I think that mathematics is absolutely essential for human flourishing. But that doesn't mean that I think every kid should take trig, right? Um, I and most people would admit that even in often even in f- fields that have some sort of quantitative element, they never use algebra. So you know, I'm, uh, I was doing a lot of quantitative research uh, for my uh, when I was getting my PhD and and been putting out academic articles, and I did a ton with ANOVA and linear regression, blah blah blah, etc. I never once used algebra in that process, right? I never once had to access that part of my brain. Um, and so uh, loosening of standards is the biggest thing. Uh, now, I, I am not ideologically opposed to tracking, as uh, streaming, as long as we do keep an eye on it for producing uh, different outcomes for different people from different racial backgrounds or gender backgrounds. Um, Germany has a system uh, where some kids uh, get locked into a vocational track quite early and they seem to like it. It's, it seems to work very well for them. So I, I, don't, I don't mind if a student wants to say, you know what, my heart lies in the auto body shop and we got that in my high school, or I can go to a special high school down the, down the road for that. Uh, and to make his high school education be largely an auto body uh, education. My uh, younger niece um, is obsessed with drawing and she's quite talented at it. So she spends half of her day in a regular high school and the other half she spends um, at a high school for the arts. And that kind of a, of a program, a hybrid program where people can do different things and they don't, or they're not constrained by narrowly written uh, cores like the Common Core. I think that is better for students. I think it's better for teachers. Every teacher knows the what a drag it is to have a student who just doesn't want to be in there and is going to be disruptive. Uh, and I think ultimately it will be better for the economy because I think that, uh, again, assuming that some of my preferred economic programs happen, I think that you'll have people who are uh, more specialized rather than having a batch of skills that they'll never use again. 
I think when I first uh, actually heard about your book and your ideas, my first reaction was to be like, but what about you know the social determinants of educational outcomes? Is he just saying that you know it's fine to have inequalities? And so it took me some time to be you know a bit more open, mm-hmm. and I think it, it it makes a lot of sense, and uh, especially you know because what we're told in in the public education system is that well the the way that we get students who from demographics that perform badly is to make sure that the standards are kept high and that they are instead of loosening the standards and having them fall through the cracks we should try and just help them meet the same same standards as everyone else and so there is a push towards forcing them to act like what we assume their upper class and advantaged peers act like but in reality, in um, in a place like Toronto, um, a lot of the schools that are in upper class neighborhoods actually offer much more diversity in programming mm. and chances for students to specialize and discover themselves in um, non strictly academic ways um, than in lower class neighborhoods where, you know, things like auto shop and uh, arts and dance and music have. Um, been cut out uh, in favor of these like, core subjects and STEM subjects with the, um, with the argument that actually, no, these student, those are the essential things that these students need to do to succeed, and we can't have them waste time on these other things, whereas you know, the, the rich kids are able to diversify. There's a, a, a real difficulty in assessing alternative pedagogies in America, and the reason is that there's such a huge confound of income, uh, parents' income, because the, the, the really sort of out there uh, experimental pedagogies that are going on in a lot of private high schools, those tend to be among the most expensive. And so we don't really uh, have that, uh, the ability to sort of say, you know, what is actually functioning better. But more, I mean, more uh, freedom for teachers, um, freedom for standardized tests, uh, more freedom uh, by students, I think, um, is going to be ultimately good. As far as falling standards goes, one thing I point out, I want to make to everybody is we're already loosening standards. We've already done that. We just don't we don't acknowledge that we've done that. So the high school graduation rate is the perfect example. We have an all-time record low dropout rate in the United States. We've never graduated students at a higher rate than we do right now, which hooray, right? You know, you know pop the champagne. Uh, the problem is, is that none of the underlying numbers show that to make any sense. In other words, we haven't seen, to pick an example, uh, the NAEP, uh, the, the National Assessment of Education Preparedness. Anyway, the NAEP, it's the, uh, it's the, the gold standard uh, for national uh, educational metrics. Neither the NAEP nor the SAT or other big tests shows us that students are fundamentally better off right now than they were 10 years ago, and yet we have this dramatic drop in the dropout rate. Why? Well, because we made dropout rates such an important part of education, because people, administrators at various schools and politicians and people at think tanks all said, got to get the graduation rate up, get that graduation rate. Well, what happens when you put that much pressure on a metric is that it necessarily goes up, right? It's, it's going up because the policy pressure is so uh, severe that people let some things slide. People give a 
B minus where once they would have given a C minus, right? Uh, the student who used used to be on a preca precarious place, like just making it or just not making it, is now someone who will show through, shove through the door. You can also look at um, grade inflation in college, right? Uh, grade inflation suggests that it's easier than ever to get good grades in college. And that's not a policy that anyone uh, put in place, but it is um, a demonstration that we, you know, we missed the boat on, on, on lowering standards. The question is, is should we do it in an int intentional way? Should we have a policy and a philosophy that uh, is guiding us or should we keep sort of bumbling along and doing it anyway? All right. So um, when is your book out and how can our listeners grab a copy? Uh, my book is out on uh, Tuesday, August 4th. So that's this coming Tuesday. Um, you can uh, go to my website, frederickdebor.com is one way. And you can uh, click on a link on the right hand side that says buy my book. And the advantage of that link is that it has six different options for buying it. So if you're queasy about using Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble for whatever reason, there's ways to get it through an independent bookshop. Um, and so yeah, frederickdebor.com, buy my book. Uh, you can use that link and, uh, and find a variety of, of sellers. Unfortunately, you can't go into a bookstore and buy it, but someday. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts on Herman Cain's death? Uh, I wish he had uh, made better pizza. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for uh, being on Oats for Breakfast, Freddie. This has been really great. Yeah, really enjoyed the chat. Yeah, me too. I had a great time. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. We'll include a link to Freddie's website in the show description for anyone who wants to order his book. So I looked up his book uh, and how to order it in Canada and actually it's very pricey. So in the US, it's you can get it for about $20 and here the price is close to $40. So, you know, it's, it is the hardcover, it's a new release. And so that's part of it, I'm sure. So I guess if people who are wanting to read the book and can't afford it, I think maybe one of, and one of the ways to kind of help out Freddie with this also is to maybe ask that your local library get a copy. And then other people can, of course, access the book uh, as well. That's a good idea. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can email contact at oatspodcast.com. Our next episode will be published on August 15th. We'll see you then. Bye.